lead pastor here at First Family. I serve the church along with other elders. It's my joy to be able to preach and teach each week. And uh, this week, I'm able to do that in tandem with our children's department. We just saw some preschoolers, and uh, they want to kind of quote some verses for you. And I know you love that, but they were probably thinking, what am I doing on this side of this deal, you know? But they did great, didn't they? I hope you'll never underestimate the power of Scripture planted in our hearts, uh, quoted like that out loud, and the chance to, to do that as a church family as well with our children. Uh, at least at Christmas, we kind of partner up with our children's ministry. And what we do is uh, preschoolers take a few minutes and sing and quote some scripture. And then um, we pick one of the texts that we're looking at in December. And then myself and our elementary department, they have a set of workers that do fabulous work. Uh, we've kind of, we kind of teach that text in tandem at least one week in December. And so that's this week. I'll be teaching from Matthew chapter 2, a very shortened version. And then they're going to kind of come and they're going to kind of show you that text kind of played out in visual form in a dramatic fashion. And so if you're wondering like, well, I thought I came for a musical and why are you up there with the Bible like you're going to preach? Well, I'm going to preach, but just a little short this morning. And they're going to see that illustrated through our elementary department and their musical. I think you'll be glad when you leave and you'll make a lot of sense, all right? So to kind of kick things off to help prepare you, uh, let's just take our Bibles for a moment and locate Matthew chapter 2, can we? Let me lay some groundwork for what you're about to see. As you're locating Matthew chapter 2, let me ask you this question. What should be our response to Jesus the King? When we realize that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is King, what should be our our response, our action, our, our um, what do we do with that? In a word, the answer is worship. Not a complicated question, nor is it a complicated answer. Now, living it out may have its moments where it seems complicated, but the, the question has a very simple answer, and it's proven in Matthew chapter 2. When we see Jesus as king, once we realize that Christ the Messiah rules and is in charge... Our response, the only right response, is one of worship, a posture that leans forward in, in humility and worships. This is exactly what the Magi did and exactly what Herod didn't do. We're going to see this in Matthew chapter 2 as we read and talk for a few moments about this second scene that Matthew brings to us. Now, notice what I said. I said second scene, right? That means there was, what, a first scene. We looked at that last week. And what we're looking at during the Christmas season this year are the five scenes in Matthew chapter 1 and 2. What Matthew does is he takes five uh, situations or scenes from the life of Christ when he was young and early, and he uses them to kind of give us a picture of what Jesus is and who he is and what we can know about him. He does that through five scenes. Last week we saw... Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, that Jesus is God with us. And so we need not be afraid. Remember Joseph and the dream and the relay of information that it was a virgin birth? So Christ was born of a woman, but not of the seed of man, and thus was God with us. And in so doing, was God with us, Emmanuel. And so there's no reason to be afraid. And then we're going to see today that Jesus is king reigning over us. And so we should worship. Now let me simply say this to you. Listen very carefully. Each of the scenes does portray a, a specific angle or a, 
it kind of relates a specific bit of information about Jesus. We're going to see that as we unfold all, all five scenes. We'll do three next week. And each one will kind of give us a picture of Jesus in a specific way. But all of the scenes together show us one main thing. And that is that all of the fulfillment of God's promises are in a person named Jesus Christ. This is why in all five scenes, in every single scene, Matthew uses the words to fulfill, or this is what the prophet said. He hearkens back to something that God said in the Old Testament. And he says, Jesus Christ is the embodiment, the final fulfillment of everything that God said. If you're looking to know how does what God said come true, look no further than Jesus Christ. He is the final fulfillment, the ultimate embodiment of everything God has said. And so at Christmas, we celebrate that. And this Christmas, we're looking specifically at the, 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 the beauty of Jesus in being that he's the final fulfillment of everything God has said. And it's seen in these five scenes of Matthew. So keep that in mind. There's one general principle. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment, but there's five kind of specific angles. We're going to see in this second scene the angle that Jesus Christ is king, and so we should worship. Let's read together, shall we? Matthew chapter 2, I'll read. You just kind of follow along with me. Here's this passage. It's one of contrasts, by the way, and how it lays out for us this simple truth that Jesus Christ is king and should be worshipped. As I read through this, keep in mind that the word contrast would be something that I think is kind of woven through the story. Not only is it the contrast of two different kings, one's considered a cultural king named Herod, one's a child, there's also the contrast of, of, of missing the obvious, which Herod does. And then when he finds out where he's born, he gets jealous and he worries, becomes hostile. But the Magi, they're actually joyful and they, they worship. There's also the contrast of a kingdom versus a simple home. So a lot of contrast in this, in this section. Kind of watch for those as we read these verses. Matthew writes for us, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Judea in the days of Herod the king, little K. <laughs> By the way, there are at least three Herods we know about in Scripture. This is the grandfather Herod, we'll call him. Uh, I believe it was his grandson who eventually took the throne of a certain area in this region, and he was the one on the throne when Jesus Christ was crucified. So in this day of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, learned men from the east came to Jerusalem. They came from the east and they came to Jerusalem. They're, they're wise men or magi. What does that mean? Just briefly, we're talking about men who were learned in the sciences and the skies and the stars. Don't think astrology. Think astronomy, all right? And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's the study of what God has created and and they were also men of the Old Testament law. They were also men who had studied prophecy. And so they had been looking for and studying and, and aware of things, God's sign, God's word. And so they came from probably Babylon or Persia. And they came expressly to Jerusalem to find out where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That was their question. Let me pause here and, and, and help you with this. We could probably spend a couple of weeks talking about this subject alone, the Magi, what they were, where they came from. Did they kind of stem from Daniel's time of captivity in Babylon? There's a lot to that. So to help you with that, because we can't cover it today, my job is simply to kind of set you up for the musical, all right? 
But uh, to help you with that, uh, our compass is available. It's on the wall as you leave. It'll be in your lighthouses. That's one of our publications we, we put out every week to help you with things like that. Also, available till Thursday is a book I wrote called Christmas Footprints. It's on Amazon. We made it available for free. I don't want you to feel like you're, you're a bit of a trapped audience to pay for a book. But it has a whole chapter about the Magi and the hope and where they got it and where they kind of understood this. And there's a lot more detail. So I'd encourage you, get our compass, uh, be involved in your small group. And then if you want, before Thursday, download that book. Uh, and it will help you understand more about the Magi and his whole idea of what wise men did and where they came from and, and how they came to understand this truth, all right? I can't do that in this message. Just know there's a lot to that. And, and they were wondering, where is who's been born king of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. So there it is. They, they've come to worship. They've understood something. There is a king we should worship. But when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. It's interesting that the wise men were curious. They were seeking, but Herod was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, and so they assembled the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And then they told him. And who is the they refer to? Interestingly enough, they refers to the chief priests and scribes, those involved in this pagan king's regime, and yet they had enough, you might call it smarts, to know if you want to find out where the king of the Jews is born, look in what God has said previously. The Old Testament. It will tell us. They did. Micah writes this. They repeat it. He's the prophet referred to in verse 5. It says he's born in Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what the prophet wrote. Here's a quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Basically, a new O Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem may have been considered a least kind of city. What good can come from there? I mean, it's a small little place. Thus the song, oh, little town of Bethlehem. And yet from that little town comes a mighty ruler, God's shepherd for his people Israel. This was told by the chief priests and scribes. Well, Herod hears this news, and in verse 7, he then says, I need to figure out then how that news connects with this star that the Magi saw. So he says to the wise men, he asks them secretly and ascertains from them what time the star had appeared. And when he got this information, the text seemed to say that then he sent them to Bethlehem. And he said, go and search it diligently for that child, this king of the Jews. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. But that was a lie, wasn't it? Herod was not joyful and wanted to worship. Herod was troubled. Remember the first part of the verse? He was worried, and he became hostile. So his reaction was one of hostility. The Magi's reaction was one of worship. The chief priests and scribes, theirs is one of indifference. We'll just find the information and tell you about it. Well, the wise men, the wise men listened, uh, the Magi, they listened to the king. They go on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Here's a supernatural sign in the sky bringing the Magi to the place where the child king was, the Christ child. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's unlike Herod, isn't it? See the contrast here? And going into the house... So we're not in the cave or the manger scene. This is some months probably after the birth. I know we see it depicted all together usually, right? Give us a little poetic license there, okay? 
The truth is someone's after the birth, after the cave-like experience, because there's no room in the inn, they're actually in a house. The Magi find their way via the star to him. They go into the house and they see the child with his mother Mary and they fell down and worshipped him. See, Herod connives and schemes to get rid of Jesus. The wise men fall down and worship Jesus. And so here, the third mention of the word worship, and it's clear that the only right response when we see Jesus as king is one of what? Say it with me. Worship. They opened their gifts then, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So they not only traveled a long ways, they brought things with them, very valuable things. And then being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, like I said, we could delve into lots of things in this text. I do in that book. Download it. You do it in our, in our, on our publication called The Compass. Do that and we'll talk more deeply about some of these things. Let me simply say that the one explicit truth from this scene is that Jesus is king, not Herod, and so he should be worshipped. It's not a hard concept to grasp, but the truth of the text should weigh on us. Jesus Christ is king and he should be worshipped. That's the right response. Hostility isn't. Worry isn't, indifference isn't. The right response is worship. Now, knowing that, you're probably thinking this right here. Well, Todd, that's a really good introduction. I'm waiting for the musical, and you've told me nothing yet I really don't know. Is this what this is, just kind of a rhetoric? Just like, you know, you, you talk for a few minutes about things we believe, and we kind of nod our heads, and then you get out of the way. Well, first of all, I admit to you, you, you already know that probably. In fact, every person here, whether you came just for the musical or you've been here since we started 11 years ago, you probably would say, I agree with that. Jesus is king. Christ was born. He's the long-awaited fulfillment of all that God has said. And so you're right. I acknowledge that worship is the right response. Now, whether I'm doing that or not is another question, but I acknowledge that to be true. Well, let me take a few more minutes and see if we can um, maybe bring that a little closer home. Maybe this is where we'll have some Christmas conviction. Because I don't think acknowledging that truth is enough. I don't think just being open to that truth is what we're after. We're after an application of that truth. Amen? We're after obedience to that truth. Since the only right response is worship, what, what do I do with that? How do I know if I'm worshiping? How do I know if that's happening? What are some signs and what are some ways to say, you know what, yeah, I'm, I am falling in humility in front of Jesus and worshiping. How do we know if that's happening? Well, believe it or not, at least at First Family, we think the answers to that question, they're in the text as well. They're in the story. So it has one central truth, doesn't it? The only right response to Jesus the King is worship, but how do we know that's happening? I think there's a couple of, I would say, implicit observations from the text. One's an explicit truth. Worship's the right response. But there's a couple of implicit, or we might say kind of discovered or garnered observations about worship I want to give you before I'm done. Here's the first one. Listen very carefully. Worship begins with God's self-revelation to us. This is very important. Please listen. Because the contrast in the story is one of Herod creating and scheming his own set of expectations that he should be worshipped, trying to manufacture uh, 
a situation where he could be the center. Does that make sense? And where did that leave him? Did that leave him or lead him to worship Jesus? No. In fact, left to his own expectations, left to his own imagination, he missed it and he messed it up. And can I say to you that if, if you leave worship, which is the right response to the king, if you leave worship to your own imagination, your own expectations, to your own um, creative mind, you'll miss it or mess it up as well. Because we have, to, we have to know something about God in order to worship Him. We don't create God and then worship Him. When we do that, that's called what? An idol. Idolatry is creating our own gods and worshiping them. But it, the truest theology is that God has given us a revelation of Himself. And this is really what I think Matthew is trying to say in Matthew 2. There is a king already in place universally. He's being born today in the city of David, Bethlehem. He's king. Go worship him. Amen? That's what's happening here. But it's not like you think, Herod. He didn't come to overthrow you politically. He didn't come to try to adjust you structurally. He didn't come to uh, uh, replace you militarily. He came to save you spiritually. But Herod missed it because he had his own expectations in mind. Watch this. It's intriguing that, that, that the ones closest to Jesus by location, the chief priests, the scribes, the king, missed Jesus. But they had the same information, they had the same access, but they missed it. Why? Because they were operating from their own set of expectations. But if they would have done what the Magi did and trusted God's self-revelation, then they would have known, oh, this is the one long prophesied in the Old Testament. God has already told us and revealed to us that a ruler would come, that he would send forth a son. You see, the Magi knew something. God has already revealed to us some things about himself. Let's take what he's already told us and let's act on that and that will show us about who Jesus is and what this Christ child is and we will worship from that. We'll worship from God's self-revelation of us, not our own expectation of what God should do for us. And boy, could the American church use this at Christmas? A hundred percent, amen? And all year round. Often we create expectations of God. We kind of write our own theology. We kind of invent our own uh, ideas. The truth is, worship is rooted. It begins with God's self-revelation to us that he loved mankind sent himself in the form of the second person of the Trinity. We named him, God named him Jesus. Joseph named him Jesus. And he was sent to save his people from their sins. This is what God in the Old Testament has long prophesied. So what drives our worship? Not what we invent about Jesus, what God has told us about himself. And by the way, that's the best gas in the engine of worship. Amen. God's own self-revelation to us. Keep in mind, this is the beginning point of all worship, what God has said to us. And Matthew does a good job of pointing this out by saying it's in the Old Testament. He's born in Bethlehem. He's going to be a shepherd of the people. God has already said this. This is the one you're to worship. Worship always begins with God's self-revelation to us. Now listen very carefully on a practical level. This is one of the reasons I like the way we structure services at First Family Church. This is not to say that music is not worship. It is. It's not to say that other things aren't worship. 
But there is something about seeing God's revelation, the word, first and foremost, coming up under its authority, and then in light of what God shows us about himself, responding to that in worship and praise. Which is why if you're a guest here, you may say, what do you mean? At this church, most of our singing, most of our praise is done in response to what God has shown to us in his word. We teach right off the bat like we did this morning, but I'll go a lot longer normally. But we teach the word, we'll preach, we'll understand the text, and then we respond to that each week in communion and in songs of praise and worship. Now, I understand all of that is worship. I get that. But let's be frank that one of the ways we respond to God is by singing and praising. And did you know, I just tend to think when we sing and praise the Lord after seeing what God has revealed to us, it comes from a much better place than if we're trying to engender a certain atmosphere ahead of time so the preaching goes better. Now, if I offended you, forgive me. My point is this. Worship doesn't come from our own manufacturing ability. It doesn't start by our own imaginations or intentions. Us making things bigger and better and brighter so folks will finally feel happy and joyful and then they'll hear the word. If we just start with the word and let it do, it, let it, let it do its work, it will generate it's worship. God will be lifted up among us. Which is why worship is of the word and truth, the word and spirit, Jesus said. It's generated by the word, empowered by the spirit. So I just say at Christmas, just listen very carefully. I, I'm all for decorations. I'm all for things we can do in our culture to, to make Christmas significant. But don't miss that the real meaning of Christmas has already been simply given. Amen? Rely on what God has revealed about himself to us in the Old Testament and the New. And let that stimulate your heart to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. Worship always begins with God's self-revelation to us. Last observation before I have the kids come up is this. Worship always results in sacrifice and giving. Now you're like, oh my, you're rolling your eyes thinking he's going to talk about money and it's December 13th. Doesn't he know it's already tight at my house? I'm not going to talk about money. Well, Todd, you just said talking about giving that, that worship results in giving and sacrifice. Isn't that, isn't that a ching-ching money thing? No. If you find yourself stingy, not just at Christmas, by the way, but if generosity and a track record of of sacrifice isn't part of your life. You don't have a giving problem. You have a worship problem. Because you sit on the throne of your life. And you will give yourself whatever you demand. When Jesus sits on the throne, you'll gladly give whatever he demands. So I say to you again, I'm not here to talk to you about giving. Because most of us don't have a giving problem all of us have a worship problem at its, at its root. You know what I'm saying? The wise men, the magi showed up. They opened their treasures. So they not only sacrificed to travel a long ways away, they brought stuff with them and they gave that to Jesus. Now the gifts themselves are symbolic. In my book, I talk about this. So pick that up and read it. But there's a lot going on here than just like the token, hey, we, we stopped by your house on Christmas Eve. Here's some gifts. See you later. Where's the food? This isn't what's happening. This is a planned, sacrificial, uh, um, it's an endeavor that took a lot of work. 
And they brought very expensive gifts because Jesus was king and was worth it. I would challenge you at Christmas to analyze your track record of generosity. How open are your hands? How loose is your grip? You'll be able to find out a lot, not about your giving, but about your worship when you analyze how generous you are. Because I have a sneaky suspicion that our hands will loosen and our hearts will open to the degree that we understand what God has said about himself to us. Did you know that? These kind of tie in together. When I realize what God has said for centuries past and how on my behalf he sent a savior to be born of a woman who lived a perfect life as God with us, (laughs) died a sinless substitutionary death, was buried and was raised by the power of the Father. That's the gospel. When I realized all that took place so that I could be rescued from my sins, forgiven, reconciled to God, saved by grace, then guess what? Giving and and having an open-handed life is really not a problem because God has been so generous with me. The key to giving is in understanding what God has given to us. And when we understand God's self-revelation as the root of worship, And then give in that way, it's not a chore or a drudgery. It's much like the Magi. It's the least we could do when we realize Jesus is king. I think that's why the song, Oh Come All You Faithful, means a lot at Christmas. We could sing that any time of the year, by the way. Things we label as Christmas songs have great theology year-round. Did you know that? You ought to try one. Maybe like June. Sing a carol. You'd be like, man, that's true. It's true in June. But we like them in this time of the year because they, they talk about the coming of Christ. Like these words. Hear this carol and think about some key words that we've discussed already. Oh, come. Sing with me, in fact. It may be a little odd tying because I'm going to kind of walk you through it. But listen to this. Oh, come, all ye faith. What's the next word? Joyful. Like the Magi. Oh, come ye, oh, come ye. Where Micah prophesied. Come and behold. Now watch this. Born the king. Here's the call to worship. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Him Christ the Lord. The only right response to Jesus the King is worship. That is always rooted in God's self-revelation to us, not our own creation, expectation, or imagination. And it's always re- it always results in giving and sacrifice. I want you to see this played out now by our children's department in this musical called The Secret of Snowflake County. Just watch how several of these principles and several parts of this text come to life for you in a visual way. My prayer is that God will use this and that drama to implant this text upon your heart. Can I pray with you?